Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today we continue our series discussing Murdoch's final published work of philosophy, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, or MGM, as we will call it throughout the rest of the podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by two experts in the field to consider how we might approach this multifaceted work. Uh, firstly joining us is Megan Laverty. Hello, Megan. Hi, Miles. Thanks for having us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Megan's uh, Associate Professor and Director of the Philosophy and Education Programme at Teachers College, Columbia University, and she teaches graduate courses on ethics, aesthetics and the philosophy of education. Um, people that have been involved in Murdoch studies a long time uh, may well know her wonderful book, Iris Murdoch's Ethics, A Consideration of Her Romantic Vision, which came out in 2007 with Bloomsbury, and she's published widely since then, and her most recent uh, work, was the chapter on civility uh, that came out uh, in the Madokian mind last year. And it's great to have her with us. We've also got um, Evgenia uh, Malinaki with us. Hello, Evgenia. Hello, Miles. Thanks so much for having us. It's really a pleasure. Uh, Evgenia is Assistant Professor of Practical Philosophy at the Philosophy Department of the University of Patras in Greece. And she earned her PhD in philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, she writes primarily in ethics, uh, moral experience and uh, virtuous reasoning and the philosophy of action, metaphysics of action, practical knowledge and rationality. She's the co-editor of the book Reason in Nature, uh, which came out in 2022 with Harvard University Press, which was co-edited with Matthew Boyle from the University of Chicago. And she works on the philosophies of Iris Murdoch, Elizabeth Anscombe and Philippa Foote. She's got a special interest in animal lives, uh, in the collapse of ways of living and in art, film, photography and indeed the novel. And she's currently working on a book project with the title Moral Growth, A Study of Ethics in Experience. So welcome to you both. Thanks again for coming on. It's wonderful to have you both on because I know that you've been working on um, a project that started um, a few years ago, back in 2019, when you were both at the uh, Centenary Conference in Oxford. And you've been working and reading uh, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals together and, and writing about it. Uh, could you tell the uh, could you tell us um a little bit more about the kind of the intellectual biography of the project before we get into the kind of the uh, the nuts and bolts of what the project in, um is is going to do uh sure um so the so so as you said we met at the at the conference in 2019 in oxford um and it was it was the first time we we saw each other it was the first time we met and like we just um, we discovered through basically listening to each other's paper, the papers that we gave there, uh, that we were writing on very similar topics or like we were engaged or interested or in the same or similar things. Mm -hmm. So uh, we started to talk while we were there at the conference and then, and then we kept up, um, you know, like, the engagement after after the conference was was over. Of course, I came back to Greece and Megan went back to the States. So it was a it was a it was a sort of like a, a huge ocean to cross. Sure. <laughs> uh, but then but then luckily or unlikely, I mean unlikely, um um mostly, but luckily for us, COVID happened. So we were confined within our apartments and and then, like being so far away, didn't seem like so far anymore. All we had to do was do what we did with anyone else we knew, like you know, go online sure. and see each other. So, so we started. So we started talking, and we started we started talking about our shared interest in Murdoch, and we and then and then at some point the idea, uh, we had the idea. Why don't we read something together? And then we thought, why not read MGM? It seems like an impossible book to read on one's own. So why not do it together? And then and then we just started reading um, section by section, chapter by chapter. We would meet like uh, once a week or once every other week. And we'll just read and chat and get to know each other and, you know, um like it was it was um it was an introduction to the thought of each other and the thought of Iris Murdoch's last philosophy work. Um so so what came out of these meetings, to make a long story short, was you know, a friendship mm -hmm. and a reading of the book. 
and uh, and and together with the reading uh, came the, the the appreciation that one was usually or typically uh, ignored or left aside or at best treated like an elegant work of art, but nothing more than that in the literature, in the literature and philosophy. I, oh. The book itself, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, was an ordinary philosophy book, right? Ordinary in the sense that we'll go on to talk about more in, in the podcast, uh, in the sense that, you know, it presents a philosophical argument a philosophical position so ordinary in the philosophical sense but completely extraordinary in in the scope of of the work done in the vision sure and yeah. and the ambition right and as we as we started to realize this we thought oh my god oh <laughs> oh our god <laughs> we need to do something about this like we need to tell, we need to let people know. So it was, so so you have to you have to visualize this. It was in the middle of the pandemic. We were shot in our individual private worlds, and and here we were, the two of us from across the Atlantic, from the two from the two sides of the Atlantic, discovering that we were discovering a book, a philosophy book, a work in philosophy that had gone pretty much unnoticed. Right, so we felt yeah. the need to share, and um, we felt the need to share, and so that's how the writing began. Uh, so uh, what we do is set up a, a a document on 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 Google Docs and work on it together. Right. Actually. Okay. Like so much so that I don't know what I wrote or what Megan wrote <laughs> uh, at, at points. I mean, we would also like divide sections as the work progressed, but then we'd always work on all of the things together um so it's um it's a, it's a it's really a common project yeah so a common project but we obviously coming from quite in a, in a sense different backgrounds different interests did you find that your readings coalesced or did you find that you were having kind of in, in, intellectual not exactly arguments but kind of um, queries over what the other person the other thought of actually of, of the work yeah you know, it's an interesting question, Miles, and, and one we've not considered. I think in part because we read the book in the spirit of an inquiry. Mm -hmm. like we were reading the book with a view to interpreting it and understanding right. it. Sure. So a lot of the reading emerged in the context of conversation. Sure. And so sometimes it was a bit of back and forth, like, oh, I sort of read this it this way, or I thought this piece or passage was the more important. Um, but a lot of the times it was sort of focusing on certain passages and just sort of, what is she saying here? And how does what she's saying here relate to what we think she said before? Mm. So there was a lot of um, revising going on as we were moving through the chapters. So I'm not I mean, I, I think there were times when we didn't so much disagree as we took a long time to come to the understanding that we right. came to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if you'd agree, Evgenia, but it, it, it didn't felt like we had sort of contrary readings that then had to jostle mm -hmm. against each other for a certain kind of place in reading of the book as a whole. It felt more like we were sort of helping each other come to a reading that made sense of the whole in light of the discussion we'd had of the, the chapters. Yeah, precisely. Like we didn't we didn't come ready to the text, you know, with a view yeah. of our own and a reading of our own. We came completely, you know, well, um, we we came we came completely unprepared and ready. In in, in 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 the sense of discovery, ready to discover, see what's there. Um, and uh, and 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 what was I mean what was what was astonishing about it was that was something that happened from the beginning, which was when we felt that we were thinking similar things, mm. 
right? When we had presented this, those papers at the 2019 conference, right? when, when that kept happening, like we kept finding out that we could complete each other's thoughts and we could take each other's thoughts a step further. So we didn't do philosophy. This philosophy reading wasn't done in a combative style. We didn't argue against each other. We furthered each other's thoughts and 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 sort of complemented each other. Um, and and that was like, you know, an act of grace. Yeah, of course. It's it's always interesting to me to hear philosophers talk about um, reading Murdoch and discussing Murdoch because it seems that her philosophy in general leads it lends itself to that kind of um comparative but also mutually supportive reading which i think is is fascinating obviously since its publication in 1992 um metaphysics has had an interesting kind of intellectual history um i wonder what you've made of the you know up, up, up until you started reading it together um obviously you you knew about it and and had probably read it read it before in, individually what do you think accounted for the reception of of the book from 92 onwards until I think really about 2019 when it started to become a, a lot you know more important really to to Madokian philosophers perhaps well you know I think I think a number of things might have contributed to the reception of the book I think one of the things that perhaps contributed to the reception of the book was just the focus on the sovereignty of good yeah. by many of the scholars that were bringing Iris Murdoch to the attention of um, other philosophers. And, um, you know, so some of the most influential philosophers like Hilary Putnam and Cora Diamond and figures like that were mainly focused on the sovereignty of good. Mm -hmm. So I think that the metaphysics was sort of overlooked or if it was considered, it was considered in the context of the arguments that were to be found in the sure. sovereignty. It wasn't considered as a departure from. Um, I think another reason is that the style of the book was puzzling to a lot of people. You know, it's it's so different to the style of the sovereignty of good mm. and uh, that the style of the book makes it very challenging. And so you have to do a lot of thinking about um, what relationship the style has to what you're going to take to be the the subject matter of the book or the content of the book. And so I think you find that people who did discuss it were sort of more focused on the style and what the style meant and um, also the style in relation to um, Iris Murdoch's illness towards the end of her life. Um, but, but, but I like to think too as well that one of the things that, that made MGM unique and accounted for some of the reception that it had or lack of sort of reception is that it, it really is a book that is trying to speak to not only professional philosophers, but more um, ordinary people or, you know, an informed or a, a, an audience that reads. And I think, um, a key to that is the title of the book, you know, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. So she's interested in how um, the history of philosophy, if read in a particular way, can actually guide us in mm. our efforts to becoming good. So now we think of public-facing philosophy as just a matter of course. You know, there are many books out there written for um, readers who are not professional philosophers. Sure. But when Murdoch wrote MGM, that wasn't nearly as common. It was sort of almost pretty much unprecedented. So, so I think, yep, you I was go. going to say, she's a bit of a trailblazer in that uh, in that regard then. Yeah, I, I, I believe so. And, um, you know, if I could quote just a little passage from the book. Please, that yeah. To this. She says, the problem about philosophy and about life is how to relate large, impressive, illuminating general conceptions to the mundane, messing about details of ordinary, personal, private existence. But can we still use these great images? Can they go on helping us? 
how do the generalizations of philosophers connect with what I'm doing in my day-to-day and moment-to-moment pilgrimage? How can metaphysics be a guide to morals? Mm. I, I just love that that passage. And I think then, you know, that if you if you take that as the context for MGM, then it allows you to take seriously how she's reading the history of philosophy because she offers, you know, I think a lot of um, the trouble with metaphysics was that, first of all, she was tackling the history of philosophy in a way that she hadn't tackled the history of philosophy in her earlier writings, or at least the sovereignty of good. And she's tackling it in a way that doesn't sort of make sense in the context of how we conventionally read the history of philosophy and the reason it doesn't make as much sense or it seems unconventional is because she's thinking about it in the context of this question how can it be a guide um so that was very exciting for us because you know we came to see the the history of philosophy as an intrinsic part and just finally too i think another reason uh for the reception is you know I think she was writing MGM at a time too when there was, you know, when the the fact-value distinction was fairly ingrained in much of the philosophical work that was being done in moral philosophy Mm. and this emphasis on neutrality and um, I think the fact that she starts from the premise that we're all pilgrims, that we're all on the way to becoming morally good, that she takes that as her given um, and then sort of works out from that is also another reason that I mean she articulates that in the sovereignty of good but I think it's a foundation for the inquiry that happens in MGM which makes it a different kind of book than what sovereignty of good was yeah I think so I'd ag- yeah, I definitely think I'd agree with that it's interesting obviously looking back now 30 years it, it seemed so it, it seemed to the my guests on the previous podcast on mgm that actually maybe it is very much ahead of its time maybe it talks to us more now as you say what one now that we have moved be moved forward in philosophical history and there are far more diverse kind of readings of books and readings of uh metaphysics um as a as an as an idea as a kind of a an overarching um, subject area than there, there there was back in the in the uh, in the early nineties. So couldn't to to move on a little bit then. What what I'm really interested, I, I guess, and this is the kind of the, the, the central part of um, the podcast today, is thinking about well, how do we go and read it? Now I know that um, you both have kind of um, worked through what you what you term a resolute reading, and how you might go and, and test that. Which I think is fascinating. Obviously, you've been doing in in a um, in a public forum as well. Um, Evgeny, could you say a little bit about that and how you've kind of um, progressed the project forward? So the um, so so what so what we were trying to understand how different parts of the book fit together, uh, and so and and different themes uh, mm. that she discusses fit together. And 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 because we didn't start with a plan to write a, uh, papers or or like even a book as we're thinking now, uh, it was all a matter of understanding, right? Um, so it didn't it didn't matter to us whether there would be a coherent uh, <laughs> a coherent reading at the end. What mattered to us was to understand. So we're thinking how did um, how did all the passages uh, and the returns to the thought of Plato and Kant and Wittgenstein and then Schopenhauer and Hegel, how did they fit together? How did those, the passages uh, in the history of philosophy fit in with her treatment of art? Uh, How did the comic fit in with the tragic? And how um, how did religion fit in with all of this? And how did she her talk of about uh, liberalism fit in mm. with all this? So we started having like large scale questions. Um, and and what what we started to see, or we think, uh, we thought we saw, and we still think we see. What we started to think to see was that she was 
she was doing multiple moves on multiple levels. So one move that um, we think that she was making was through spheres of human activity, right? So in other words, so she has like extensive discussions of art, religion, philosophy, language, mm. right? Yeah. Um, in, in the book, extensive and recurring discussions of these themes. And if you just look at them as themes, then they don't really make sense together. But if you think of them as spheres of human activity into which it makes sense to go, because we find that the same movement happens again and again, then this begins to make sense. Now, what, when we started to think about it this way, we started to see that what she's dealing with in each sphere of human activity, in art, in, in philosophy, in religion, in language, in the history of philosophy, was that the, the, the nature of the understanding, the nature and the character and the quality of the act of understanding in each of these spheres of human activity, the dangers to which this act of understanding lay itself open, right? And the attempts within each of these spheres of activity, right? From the main heroes, right? Of this, of the, in these spheres of activity, the attempts of those practitioners to deal with a danger, right? So to make it, to make it more concrete, when, when we started to see, as we were reading the initial chapters of the book through this lens, what we started to see was that Meridoff was interested in all of these discussions, I repeat, in art, in religion, in the history of philosophy, in language. Meridoff was interested in all of these discussions because she was interested in seeing and in having us see that in each of these spheres of activity, the human mind in attempting to comprehend the reality which it faced, inevitably made unifying pictures of the material with which it was confronted, right? Yeah. So, so in each of these spheres of activities, both the human mind and that's important, both the human mind and the practitioners, if you like the expert practitioners in these spheres of activity, right? Had to deal with the same kind of endeavor, the same kind were presented, were confronted with the same task to comprehend, to understand what was there before them and how to do that. And Murdoch finds in all of her discussions of these spheres, Murdoch finds that the human mind does this, attempts to do it by making unifying holes, by making pictures, images that attempt to be whole, to encompass all of what is there, what confronts one, right? Into what she calls limited holes, right? Again and again throughout the book. Right? She calls this the, the, the whole-making tendencies mm. of the human mind, yeah. right? And she, in fact, she begins the book with that very idea. So if I may just read the first line, the first yeah, sentence please do. Of, the, of the book. The idea of a self-contained unity or limited whole is a fundamental instinctive concept, period. Right. And that is the beginning sentence in a book called Metaphysics is a Guide to Morals. Mm. So, so one thing that so one thing that we found was that her discussion in all of these fields was not random. It wasn't if you if you at the risk of sounding vulgar, I'll say it wasn't just the rumblings of an old lady doing philosophy. Sure. 
right? It was an old lady doing philosophy properly. <laughs> Both in these spheres of activity and also in the history of philosophy, as she is reading it in MGM, we found that Murdoch finds this tendency of the human mind, this whole making tendency of the human mind again and again and again. And so we, we started to see that what she does in the first part of the book is, is set that tendency, that activity is set it into motion, both historically in the history of philosophy and systematically across the different spheres of human activity. So that was that was really the beginning of our reading. Like that's when we started to think, gosh, she's she's doing something extraordinary here. And I think that's fascinating because quite often people say, well, how can you have, as we know, there's an you know in in the in the index virtually every major figure of western thought and indeed quite a number of eastern um, um, figures from, from eastern thought as well plus you know talking about art and literature and you know and, and elements of um questions about contingency questions about existentialism how can you bring this all together into one and of course one one, one of the great criticisms is well it, it it doesn't actually hold together but what you're suggesting is that actually it very much does because if according to Murdoch, the intellect is one making, as it says on 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 the first page of MGM, then actually we can deal with this question about the uh, the question of the human mind and and its and and the and the wonderful variety of experiences and activities that it can it can perform. And in fact, if we don't do that, then we can't really grasp how metaphysics might be a guide to morals. Precisely, precisely, yes, I would say precisely so. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, do you want to come? Do you want to chip in on that? I mean, there's there's so much to there's so much to discuss, isn't there? Questions about well, not uh, I, I guess questions not just about how you kind of gather the, all, all these elements together and and think about a, a pathway for reading, but it's also about um, how Murdoch responds to these elements, and then how you as how you as philosophers also respond to what she's saying to us today. I guess because the project is is happening now; it's ongoing. And it's also question about reflection about where we were and where we're going to, I guess. So there's there's a lot involved in your project, isn't there? Yeah, no, there is because I think um, you know, just sort of continuing the line of thought. Um, Evgenia mentioned that within the context of all these activities and within the context of thinking about this, you know, whole making future mm. uh, of the mind. Um, the 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 danger to, to that enterprise or, or the perceived, I mean, what threatens that or what that's in response to is, um, you know, what she calls contingency. Sure. And, and she means, you know, a number of things by it. I think sometimes she means um, just, just the sheer sort of, what does she call it, senseless, accidental nature of so much of life yeah. uh, there's no internal talos or meaning to how things happen um mm. she she often talks about and i suppose the you know the, the deepest sense of that is death i mean sure. death comes to us all and and for many of us our deaths are unremarkable mm. you know? Um, and she gives the example of uh, a prisoner being shot in the forest and, and no one knowing. So, you know, our, our efforts to make kind of, to make sense of the world are an, are an effort to give form, to give shape, to, to, to give a sense of unity to what is otherwise, you know, senseless, accidental, contingent, mm. banal, messy. Um, so, so she's interested, I think, in both the necessity we feel to have to make sense, to, to, do, to create these, 
these pictures, these unified wholes in all the activities that Evgenia mentioned, but how we're doing that against a background that is kind of messy, banal, mm. um, you know, uh, that, that kind of resists that impulse. And, and how and so the, the the question becomes how do we you know how do our limited holes how do the holes that we create in art in philosophy in um, religion do justice to the fact that our life is messy is contingent is that death is coming to us all and I think, you know, we call that in the reading the question of truthfulness. And we think that was um, a preoccupation that Murdoch has throughout the book. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it's going to be the reason that she calls for what we're calling broken holes as opposed to limited holes. And, and that, in a sense, is where she's been travelling ever since the late 30s early 40s when she starts publishing philosophy right do, do you do you see mgm as a culmination of what she's been doing for the last 50 years roughly or do you see it as a kind of a a, a new type of a new way of expressing herself or maybe it's both i'm not sure well yes i was going to say um uh we, we in, in in our discussions we seem to be having a duck rabbit uh, a gestalt switch, right? It seems at times it seems like it's a continuation, and at other times it seems like it's a it's it's a it's a um um well it, uh, um not a continuation, but like a break from her earlier self. Sure. So 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 um the very least that we wanted to see, and I think that it can be done is whether we can talk about MGM as a philosophical work in its own right. Okay. And once we can do this, right, then you'll know Miles uh, from literature, right, that we could go back to her earlier work and ask, how now, how does this relate mm. to early Merdoch, Sure. right? Can we can we really talk? Does it really make sense to talk of an early Murdoch and a late Murdoch, uh, or 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 is there like more of a continuation rather than a break and so on and so forth? But the, but the, but the, that discussion hasn't happened because um, for I mean for reasons having to do with the text as well, no doubt, but also for reasons having to do with like prejudice, we haven't been able to treat MGM as a philosophical work. I mean we in philosophy and in moral philosophy and not being able to treat this book as a, as a book, as a work in philosophy in its own right, right? So we haven't been mm -hmm. able to have this discussion. But, but so our hunch is that once this discussion begins, and we hope that it will, we'll see that a lot of the things that we take for granted in um, Murdoch's earlier work in, in the sovereignty most notably uh, should not be taken for granted. Right. So, um, so uh, the concept of experience, so of moral perception, the concept of moral perception, which for a very long time, at least in moral philosophy, uh, was the the focal, uh, the 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 main focus of moral philosophers dealing with Meridoch, right? Mm, uh, sure. Either as an Aristotelian, a neo-Aristotelian of sorts, right? So uh, people were taking moral perception in early Merdoch to be um, some sort of like frenetic knowledge, Aristotelian practical wisdom, right? Or um, some particularist um, uh, sensitivity. Um, like if you go to the to MGM and 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 you see how much as as we did how much how richer her concept of moral experience there is how how richer more nuanced mm. uh, uh and 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 extending far beyond the confines of of the debates of contemporary debates for the past 50 years or so in moral philosophy right so we see so we see if we dig in closer in MGM a concept of 
moral experience, a, a, a notion of moral experience in which the, the perceptive aspect of it and the moral aspect of it and the phenomenological aspect of it and the sensibility aspect of it is not at all, how to say, separated mm. from each other in the way that these concepts are in in typically are in philosophy, right? So 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 we would be inclined to say when going back from MGM to the sovereignty that the moral perception and the moral attentiveness of which he speaks in the sovereignty is just one aspect or one place. Maybe that's that's better. That's a better use of a choice of word. One place in which one can see what moral experience is. Right? And 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 um, and perhaps she was of the same mind when she was writing the sovereignty. And I mean, come to think of it, when she talks in the sovereignty before introducing the famous M and D example, she says she could have used the example of a ritual. Yes. But she chose not to. And then, and then the question arises: Does that mean that she didn't have moral experience in mind? Hmm. Very doubtful. Absolutely. But how can ritual be? be a case of moral experience but then you go to mgm and you see how sure right so 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 we were hoping in putting this reading out there part of what we're actually hoping is to open up some of these discussions and, sure. and sort of start to treat Merloch in the same way we treat other dominant figures in philosophy I, we read all of their work with the same kind of attention, right? Yeah. And, and the same kind of dialectic engagement. And then we look at the different works together, right? So that's what we're hoping will come out of the, of the reading. I mean, assuming it has any responses, right? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sure it will. I know that you're um, pub publishing a variety of papers in in various in various places, and and obviously, as I said, in, um, presenting at conferences and, and elsewhere. Um, for for listeners um, who aren't aware of, of where this material is, we can um, put some links up, um, so you've got some um, more detail about where to to look for um, Megan and Evgenia's work. But it's it sounds to me as very much a um, an amateur in the philosophy field um, that what you're proposing really is that this interpretation of Murdoch through MGM is going to change a great deal of how we kind of approach both Murdoch's work but also how we might think about metaphysics as a as a subject in the 21st century um, that seems to be a, a, something really important that's, that's coming out of the project Megan yeah, no, um, thanks, Miles. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we think that, um, well, one of the things that our reading is seeking to do is seeking to show that Murdoch's interested in a metaphysics that charts a course between the traditional uncomplicated sense of a metaphysical picture mm -hmm. that points to us you know describes for us a certain kind of reality and the the more contemporary uh, position which he calls um you know this demythologizing of these metaphysical unities that she thinks have been sort of a powerful force in contemporary debates mm. that have caused us to to question all of our most cherished unities and to doubt whether they actually um, do point to reality or are in any way meaningful. Um, she wants to say, I think she, you know, on our reading, we believe she wants to say that she thinks there's a possibility for metaphysics to um, both be whole making, both to create pictures, these general images that um, she talked about, um, 
but for them to be broken mm. so for them to admit uh, of the contingent you know not to kind of have a sense of value that's preserved and protected from the contingent and then reintroduced into the contingent mm. world but to actually be broken such that the contingency of life and the contingency of human existence and the, and the kind of inherent accidentalness of reality can be part of how it is that we understand reality. And I think, you know, I think that's, um, I think that helps us going back to Evgenia's point, rethink some of her most foundational concepts in the sovereignty of good, because, you know, if you think about the love, you know, loving and just gaze and the sense that we have that we know what love is. Um, I think she's sort of saying, well, the sense in which I meant it then and, and, and mean it now is not the sense that we sort of know what it means, but it's, it's a sense, it's a, it's a concept that's pointing us to something that's very, very difficult to do. We, we don't do it. Historically, we don't see it all that often. We don't see it in the arts. We don't see it in religion. We don't see it in all these activities. So it's a real challenge for us as human beings to, to realise this vision um, of the broken whole in metaphysics, in art, in religion. And it requires of us something like uh, what we understand when we talk about love, like an incredible kind of vulnerability, an incredible kind of availability, an incredible kind of um, incompleteness in mm. the sense that we have of ourselves and the world. So I really do think she she's offering us a vision of metaphysics and of religion and of art that that she's inviting us to kind of entertain and aspire to in the recognition that this is almost impossible a task for us. Um, and I think that's very exciting sort of when you look back at the more immediate history of philosophy and do see that debate between, um, you know, traditional metaphysics and you know, post-structuralism, post-monism, mm. deconstruction. So I, I'm excited by what we think this reading offers us in terms of both looking back at Murdoch's scholarship, but also looking forward in terms of how we do do metaphysics and art and tragedy and religion. Sure. And I, I, I suppose over the last 30 years or so since, since publication, that's um, the growing development of secularization in the west but also the far closer connections that we have globally now um both can find particular you can find particular readings for those in mgm i think that question mm -hmm. about connection but also about um interpretation perfection questions about um as you say about the questions about what we can hold on to um, from demythologized religion as well. All, all of these ideas that are at play throughout Metaphysics, the Guide to Morals, it's, you know, the, the 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 threads that are involved throughout each chapter, I suppose, even though each chapter is, in, in some regards, dealing with its own particular idea, they're all pretty essential, for, for me anyway, re reading it now, they're all pretty essential to how we might consider ourselves in the present moment. Yeah, I agree uh, with you wholeheartedly. I don't know if you want to follow up, Evgenia. Yes, no, I agree. I agree with you too. I'm not sure if I can add anything to the to the thought. It was a very <laughs> it was a very well formed thought there. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, the, there is, there is, I mean, perhaps one could say this. I suppose that, like, and we had various discussions about this with Megan uh, over the course of our meetings, that the Myrna is usually considered as mm, ah, progressive in her views, but not so, or not enough, mm. or liberal mm. in her views, but not enough. Um, 
and and that and and I think that like the like a few ideas, a few suggestions or, or ideas or themes that run the book um, show us otherwise. I mean, of course, when one reads a philosopher, one loves one, you know, is supposed to say what I'm saying right now. But I, I, I also think it's true. Uh, the um, so so. Um, so the idea that there's a theme running through the book, and I think it ties with a reading of it, and it's the idea that the task of metaphysics, mm. right, if one it is, so in other words, the task of making sense of all of what confronts us uh, on a philosophical register is not the task of an, for an expert alone. It's not the task for a master technician in in the craft of philosophy alone. Is a task for the individual, the historical individual, on its on her on their pilgrimage, right um, towards reality and towards the good, and 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 that idea on its own is, if you ask me, a pretty radical idea, right? That the central questions of Western metaphysics, the central questions of Western religion, history, art, right? Are not questions for the expert alone. Yeah. Right? They, they're, they're essentially, in their essence, in their being what they are, they address not the common man, because because that that would uh, subtract from the point that the 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 real <laughs> actor, which is the the historical individual that is subject to the forces of contingency, right? The 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 forces of loss, pain, annihilation, death, meaninglessness, as they nevertheless. And, and most importantly are on their way towards what binds them with their true being, which is their quest for truth and goodness. Mm. And, 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 so, and so what is included in that idea, that idea of the, of the, of the historical individual being the actor, who is included? Right, that is a historical question. That is a question for, mm. for 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 each society to to deal with and to answer. And and like and 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 the idea that we could foreclose this question, that we could see it, the three of us or the ten of us or like however many of us that we could sit around a table and answer this question definitively, right? And and so in in thus doing, exclude anyone from that pilgrimage, right? That idea at its core, which is the conservative idea at its core, goes against the, the, the main, the fundamental aim of the book as we read it. Hey, in other words, I, yes, Miles. <laughs> I, Evgenia, you make me, the way you put it this time makes me think about what she says in the sovereignty of good about including Socrates and the virtuous peasant. I'm wondering if you think that this is kind of a this is her offering, if you like, a, a, a more detailed, more thought out, deeper response founded on that same impulse. Like right, she so understands she, now what she meant almost. Right, absolutely. I hadn't thought about it before you asked, but but absolutely yes. Like the 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 it, it's almost as if in MGM she's rethink she's she's really thinking through a thought that she had that was available to her in the sovereignty, but not not in a well worked out form. And that's why that's why she you know, that's why she made the unfortunate, you know comparison between the the peasant and the and the Socrates you know Socrates was yeah. a peasant of sorts and yeah uh for obvious reasons but the, but the but the 
yeah maybe 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 the thought was available there but it wasn't it wasn't as well worked out as it as it was in the MGM I hadn't thought about it that way no you're right it makes sense and that's that would explain I think um why her formulations in MGM when she is talking about the person for whom this work I mean for the person about the person who is to is tasked with doing this work the formulations are so much better mm. you know when she talks of the energy of the bereaved person trying to survive in the best way or of the mother thinking about her delinquent son I mean she has elements of that in the sovereignty of good but it's as if she it, it's as if it's as if she understands better the nature of the task and in understanding better the nature of the task she's able to speak about it in ways that convey more appropriately than she did in the sovereignty of good why this inclusivity is such a key feature of her Mm-hmm. approach to thinking about moral mm-hmm. philosophy yes because otherwise otherwise you have to you have to revert to a reading of of the sovereignty as a as a sort of like benevolent sort of philosopher who like happens to like socrates as much as an ex-peasant and it and 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 that how it all that all ties up with her focus on love and you know um uh, and, and and i mean it's all fine but it's not it's not nearly as insightful as what you're saying right now. Yeah. Like well, because it's like the, the, because I mean, I mean, it's not the, the, so the way she makes it con- the contrast in the sovereignty is, is, is between the like, uh, you know, the initiator of the, the philosophical adventure of the entire Western civilization, right? Socrates, <laughs> and then and then they they intellectually bore the peasant, and mm-hmm. and she's making a good point about both of them, but the the contrast is not the right one. The yeah. the the contrast is the one she's making in MGM is is between is between the expert and and and. Well, the expert, but not just the expert, the timeless individual mm-hmm. and the historical individual, and then the expert and the layman. There is like a variety of contrasts to be drawn there, right? But mm-hmm. the, but it seems that the main one has to do with the with the historical versus a historical individual, and so in a sense, what she's doing with the philosophers there, and that maybe that's why Megan is singing and Miles. Maybe that's why she has pissed off so many philosophers. What she's doing with the philosophers is she's taking them off the cross. Yeah. And, and, you know, treating them like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but like they were mostly men. So treating them like dudes one can sing along with. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, treating them as, as, as historical individuals faced with the same task, only from a different position and 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 obviously with different tools and and you know different audience, right? I guess, I guess um, we might say humanizing them a little bit more and bringing them back, bringing them off the pedestal that perhaps the Western, the Western them, philosophical yes. canon puts them on, perhaps humanizing them, but like from a from not from the from the old lady's perspective, you know, like, sure. like not humanizing from the oh, can't be so difficult. But here is an elderly dame, Meridoch, like who you know makes him seem a bit childish. None of that. No, sure. She's she's having an absolutely like I mean it, she's giving an interpretation of the history of philosophy, mm-hmm. right? And it's one you can disagree with, but it's not childish. No. And, and and it's no means. And, and and it's and it's and it is and and she's humanizing them in a way that's making the project radical you know yeah. the project of philosophy as well mm. you know it's making I, it relevant and yeah. so radical <laughs> i wonder if we kind of sort of draw back a little bit from the detail and, and think about merlock as a thinker both as a historical thinker um from you know over 50 years 
of working in 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 this general area i wonder as, as we come towards the end of the podcast now i wonder whether we can still whether mgm from your reading kind of makes us reconsider what kind of philosopher she is obviously you know we think of her as being a platonist or a uh um, a, a Wittgensteinian neoplatonist as she um, called herself but do you see that maybe there are different angles that she's taking she's more open opening herself up a little bit more I wonder what you think I could I could just respond um just building on the previous discussion and yeah. responding to your question Miles um you know, Evgenia mentioned the idea of the benevolent philosopher, the mm. philosopher who uh, appreciates Socrates, but also happens to to care about or to to to, to want to defend the virtuous peasant. And you know, this philosopher who um, stresses love and justice, and and I'm conscious too of how. Murdoch, you know, wasn't taken up by mainstream philosophy after she had published The Sovereignty of Good, but she was taken up by a lot of the early feminist philosophers mm. who saw in her, you know, an emphasis on relationality, an emphasis on care, and an emphasis on consideration of the other. And all of those are important elements of Murdoch and Murdoch's thought. But what I do see her as doing in um, MGN is kind of resist, she's trying to resist, I think, being boxed in as, as merely a philosopher who is benevolent in spirit or mm. a philosopher who, who is sort of the benevolent philosopher. And I, I think that she does that in a number of ways. I think one of the ways she does it is by stressing the void and by stressing um, a lot more in MGM than she does in The Sovereignty of Good, uh, suffering, the, the very dark aspects of human life. Mm -hmm. You know, she has a whole chapter dedicated to tragedy. She's she, she, she really wants us to understand that she is um, cognizant of and engaged with uh, what is dark about human life, what is difficult and dark about yeah. human life. And I also think that, um, you know, just to, to echo what Evgenia was saying, I think she is is wanting to it's important to her to be grappling with these major figures in the history of philosophy um, that were male i think and i i'm not sure i can articulate a reason for why but but i think that really matters to her in terms of appreciating the scope of her thought like I think she really wants to emphasize that the scope of her thought is not limited in the ways in which if you read the sovereignty of good you might think of her thought as limited mm. to some very specific debates in the history of um, English-speaking philosophy uh, so they're, they're sort of two things that sort of came to mind as Evgenia was speaking that I thought of as being really important um, in the context of MGM and how we think about Murdoch and who she was as a thinker. I, I happen to agree with Evgenia. I think Murdoch was far more radical throughout her life and throughout her thinking philosophically and in her, the context of her novels than, we, than we've been able to give her credit for. And and I'm not sure. Thus far, perhaps. Thus far, yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and and you know, people might disagree, and but but that that seems to be an important lesson from at least taking seriously MGM that 
here is a uh, here is a, like a, a here is like there's just there's so much ambition in that project and so much conviction. Mm. Um, it 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 really works. You know, it's like um, some of the criticisms of Murdoch are that she's just this sort of privileged white, you know, middle class. Uh, English woman who writes about uh, novels about, you know, people in the same class and is preoccupied by issues that um, are within that class. Mm, sure. And, and I think, you know, in some contexts that's a fair criticism, but I think what we've learned from reading MGM is just that Murdoch's so far from that and maybe was always far from that. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm repeating myself. <laughs> well, no, it, it's, you know, I think it's worth repeating, but also worth saying that um, the project is ongoing. And yes. um, no doubt, as, as we've heard on the on, on this podcast, your your thoughts and your kind of um, conclusions, both as individuals and, and as, as, a, as a kind of a, a working pair are still being worked through. I, I wondered, I always ask um, guests, I, well, I generally ask guests this at the end of the podcast to recommend something for uh, listeners to go away and read. But obviously, we've just been talking about MGM. Do you think that um, somebody who's coming with maybe a basic knowledge of philosophy who hasn't tackled MGM yet can do so? Um, and should they start at the beginning or should they choose a chapter or should people have a little bit of background, maybe reading The Sovereignty of Good, three essays or something different before they approach MGM? I I think it's actually, I think, I think the... Um someone with no background in philosophy is probably better suited to read this than someone with uh, you know, a, a, a solid background in philosophy. Because uh, uh, depending on where you come from or one or school of thought you've grown up in, um, sure. you know, uh, you're about to like uh, have all sorts of prejudices against this book. Uh, but, um, I but I uh, I think that um I think that it's a book it's a it's a very long book and and so I think Murdoch knew that it is and so long books are read like long books you don't you don't dwell forever on just this one sentence you you know you don't understand something but you keep going and in the hope yeah that you know you may get it the second time um mm. so um but the but the um, I think it's a it's a book one should totally go for when when uh, doing philosophy. It uh, it's I I think it is actually a good philosophy work by a good philosopher. Period, and and like you know no qualifications needed. Uh, I mean the sovereignty is also awesome, and I would uh, I would recommend that equally strongly. Uh, but this is no less. It's not a lesser book. Sure. <laughs> it's I, oh, well, go ahead. I was going to ask you a question. Do you think, too, um, given the ways we've read the book, that um, it it has to be read from beginning to end? Yes, absolutely. Yes. yes. And it's the mistake that we've yes. made in the Iris Murdoch community, I think, to think that you can read a chapter here or a chapter there. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely not. Yes, no, no, no eclectic read. It doesn't lend itself. Yeah, to you, the you can't just pick out the chapter on void or the chapter on. No, it won't. It yeah. won't make. You know, it won't make sense. No, it's not. It's not okay. the void. You know, it's not such. You know, maybe, maybe that's what. Maybe, maybe me, possibly, and maybe others, maybe are guilty of having done that in the past. So maybe we, we just need to sit down and, and give time to really imbibe what Murdoch is saying throughout the entirety of the book. And maybe we, we should, you know, we should all be reading it together. Like it really mm -hmm. actually helped a lot that, that I had Megan to yeah, read it with. Uh, it is, I mean, it is in ways an impossible uh, book to read, but it, but I mean, then again, philosophy is at times impossible anyway, yeah. um, you know, and one needs companions. And, and you know, what, I, what I'd really, really say to someone who's young to the to the business is, I mean, the business of philosophy is keep trying to find people who can hear your voice mm. and who can think along with you. 
because even if you haven't found them yet, they're there. And only when you do find them, you feel what you what you what you barely, you know, what you barely suspect, which is that philosophy is an activity of the human mind, which is marvelous. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and you know, I have Megan to thank for that. <laughs> you, I was just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a I think that's a lovely moment on on which to end. That's uh, idea of uh, collegiality and 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 reading together or reading in a group. It's a really important one, and it's good to see over the last five or ten years um, that happening more and more, especially now with um, the ability to do so much more online. So um, my deep thanks to um, Evgenia and to Megan for coming on, talking about their project and talking about their 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 reading of MGM. Um, if you want more details about that, there's details um, in the um, in the text box below the the podcast. Uh, so my thanks to both of them um, for being with me today and, and sharing their thoughts. And my thanks to, to you all for listening.